We want to welcome you to the Bible teaching ministry of Fellowship Bible Church, where our desire is to honor God by faithful obedience to His Word. If you want to understand the Bible better, please continue to listen as Pastor Matt Postiff explains and applies the biblical text one verse at a time. You can reach us with questions or for more teaching audio and print material at our website, fbcaa.org. You can also watch our services live at fbcaa.org live. We want to thank you for listening and pray that you will be edified. Join us now as Pastor Postiff opens God's Word. Acts chapter 9, we're in our series in the book of Acts. Again, we, uh, you've been with us for a long time. You might remember we studied Acts back in 2012, maybe. So here we are back again. No, you don't remember all the details, huh? Well, neither do I. So here, here we are. The conversion of the Apostle Paul to follow Jesus Christ. And that conversion was a momentous event in the life of the church, the history of the church, because it sets the foundation for much of the remainder of the New Testament. If we didn't know the account of what happened here, we would wonder, who is this Apostle Paul, a servant of Christ, who writes all these letters to these churches? You know, who is this character? Well, this tells us where he came from a little bit and tells us about his conversion and how we can know that he's a trustworthy minister because Jesus Christ himself called him out of uh, darkness and into his light, literally into his light. And so we have a simple little outline here, a confrontation that Paul faced on the way to Damascus, and then Ananias and the baptism of of Saul. Uh, Let me just dispel the uh, notion that Uh, Saul's name was changed to Paul when he got saved. That's a common notion, but it's not true. Um, In this uh, era era and area of the world, uh, there were multiple languages. People would speak two or three languages in a standard way. You'd have, uh, as, as a standard, I should say, just as commonplace thing. And so you'd have your Hebrew name, Saul, and you'd have your Greek name, Paul, and you might have a variation in Aramaic and, um, you know, a nickname or whatever. Saul of Tarsus, also called Paul, and his ministry towards the Greeks or the Gentiles. Um, let's start reading in verse number 1, chapter 9. Then Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked letters from him to the synagogue, synagogues, plural, of Damascus, that's the, the, the ancient city in Syria to the north, so that if he found any who were of the way, capital W, the way, why do they call it, the, why does he call it the way? Well, Jesus is the way, the truth and the life. Yeah, the way of truth, the way of holiness, the way of Christ. Uh, whether men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. As he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly a light shone around him from heaven. Then he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? Then the Lord said, I am Jesus. Notice, the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. So he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what do you want me to do? Then the Lord said to him, Arise and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. 
And the men who journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing a voice, but seeing no one. Then Saul arose from the ground, and when his eyes were opened, he saw no one. But they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And he was three days without sight, and neither ate nor drank. The high priest at this time that uh, Saul went to to get letters to the synagogues was probably still Caiaphas. He was high priest until 36 A.D., and uh, uh, so some years after, say, the crucifixion was in 30 or around there, uh, we still believe we're before that time period. And you can see a number of passages uh, in the Gospels that we won't look at this evening, Matthew 26, Luke 3, John 11, and so on, uh, and also in Acts chapter 4, where we have been recently, Acts chapter 4 and verse number 6, um, says, as well as Annas, the high priest, Caiaphas, John, and Alexander, and so on, as many as were of the family of the high priest. We talked a little bit about that uh, movement of the rota- or rotation, as it were, between the uh, men for high priest and the o- older fellow who was kind of in charge of all that. In any case, probably still the same basic, um, how can you say, regime, the same administration. We wonder how Paul could have authority to go far away, 100 and some odd miles north to Damascus, uh, to synagogues up there, and drag people off from their hometown. And it appears, uh, if this is what we think is going on, that the Jews probably had some kind of carte blanche in the religious matters from the Romans. So as as kind of a a bone the Romans would throw to the Jewish people. They, they gave them this authority to have some you know, kind of sway over the religious activity in the different synagogues, even if they were outside of the um, Judean or Galilean area. Um, it's, uh, you know, that, the distance actually is 135 miles. That's like from Ann Arbor to Benton Harbor or Fort Wayne or almost as far as Cleveland. And so, you know, we don't really think of, like, police. You know, the police in uh, Ann Arbor don't have any jurisdiction much in Cleveland, do they? (laughs) Or Benton Harbor, for that matter. And here they are arresting someone uh, from in such a, a long distance away, but also for religious differences. I mean, can you imagine that today in the United States? Well, sort of we can. (laughs) But not generally that, you know, a Catholic, say a Catholic uh, uh, governor gets in power and he starts arresting all the Protestants. Think of that. That, hap- that has happened in church history, hasn't it? Yeah. Uh, we obviously do not permit that within the bounds of the Judeo-Christian family of religions. But, but you know, Paul also has no local police power in the, in the area to which he's traveling, but he evidently had this kind of regional authority over the synagogue system. So... Hard for us to understand that, but if you were raised in a culture, specifically a religious-based culture, you'd have no difficulty understanding that religious differences are a basis for arresting somebody because you would have seen it in your life over and over again. You would have grown up with that reality and it would have just wouldn't have even phased you. You know, it might, it might require a, a, uh, an eye-opening to you if you grew up in that culture to realize, hey, wait a minute, why are we arresting people who have different beliefs than we do about God? 
Like, why is the government even involved in that? Just let them alone. For us, it's the other way around. You know, it's hard for us to think how people could even think the other way uh, in those areas where there's a strong religious authority within the state. Say a Muslim state, for example, you know, when they can arrest uh, somebody for immoral behavior that here people just kind of laugh at or uh, arrest a woman for not dressing properly or for driving or uh, arrest a man who has become a Christian because he's blasphemed Allah or something. That's the reality that a lot of people live in. Uh, Homer Kent is a uh, theologian commentator who writes in his book, Jerusalem to Rome, studies in the book of Acts. He says this, apparently Paul or Saul's quarry, Q-U-A-R-R-Y, the ones he was chasing down, were ones who had fled Jerusalem and sought sanctuary in Damascus. You remember why they fled Jerusalem? Because of Paul and the persecution that he unleashed on the church after Stephen, Stephen's death. Roman practice allowed the Jewish Sanhedrin to control Jewish affairs even outside of Palestine proper. Synagogue rulers at Damascus could therefore be expected to cooperate with anyone who bore such authorization from Jerusalem. And so Paul creates the havoc, and then he goes and chases those people down. What a jerk, you know. Uh, Notice 9.2, it says... Uh, he wanted letters so that if he found any who were of the way, any. This doesn't seem to limit his quarry to those who were from Jerusalem. So I'm kind of undercutting a little bit about, of what Kent says, although what he says is good. Uh, the Bible tells us any of them, not just the Jerusalem-originated Christians, but any ones that he wanted to haul out of the synagogue. Paul was trying to destroy the church. In Galatians chapter 1, it says this, For you have heard of my former conduct in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. Tried to destroy it. That's a, uh, I think that's called an ingressive um, use of the verb. Uh, in this in your, in your verb syntax, ingressive means that the verb is saying he tried to destroy it, but what? He couldn't actually destroy it. He wasn't successful at it, but he tried to. Um, verse 3. Well, let's throw some light on the situation, shall we? And uh, verse 3 is light is the light of the glory of Jesus Christ. As he journeyed and came near Damascus, suddenly a light shone around him from heaven. Okay, this is like, you know, in one of those, one of those um, mob movies where they capture a guy and put him in a dark room and put the lights in his eyes and, you know, torture him or interview him or whatever, you know, ask him questions until he answers. Well, here's the light. Now we're going to put Paul under the scope here. In verse 4, a voice associated with that light came from heaven asking Saul why he was persecuting me. We're introduced here to the idea that persecuting the church equals persecuting Jesus. When it is put that starkly, it appears to be a very bad idea to persecute the church. 
I hate to be somebody who persecuted the church in history because in 1 Corinthians 3.17, Paul said, if anyone defiles the temple of God, God will destroy him. And you have people today who even in the last recent years delighted to persecute churches, delighted to put pastors in jail, uh, delight to make their lives difficult. And that's only in the United States I'm talking, and in Canada, not to mention all the rest of the places in the world. The religious authorities who are persecuting the church in the Far East, the Middle East, in Russia and elsewhere, they are going to have their day in court. And when they find out that persecuting the church equals persecuting the Lord of all creation, they are going to be sad customers. Let me just tell you, if you're listening and you're thinking uh, about this, just know that persecuting the church is persecuting Jesus. Jesus is Lord of all, sitting at the right hand of the Father in heaven, waiting until his enemies be made his footstool, and he will reign over the kingdoms of the world with his people. The kingdoms will become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. And he will smash all opposition as a potter's vessel is smashed to smithereens. And so as the psalmist says, kiss the son, do homage to him, get underneath his authority, don't be, don't be persecuting don't be persecuting his people. What touches the church touches the apple of his eye, as it were. You know, when you poke somebody in the eye, it, things get serious. When you poke God in the eye, things get serious. So the temple is the church. The temple is Christ's body. It's united to him, and it is, uh, it's a built-in part of that body of Christ. Now, Jesus' intervention at the moment that it happens is quite scary. Can you imagine? Just put yourself in his shoes. Anybody who has encountered God in the Bible falls down to the ground, feels like they're going to die, if not almost so, like Daniel even, a man as holy as Daniel. Most of us don't hold a candle to that lad, do we? <laughs> Even when he was a teenager, he had us by a fair uh, a margin. And uh, yet he falls down and is weakened and, and needs to be strengthened by an angel when he sees the Lord. John, in Revelation, sees the Lord. Isaiah saw the Lord high and lifted up. Manoah and his wife thought they would die because they saw the angel of the Lord. Here's Saul, scary in this situation. But even as, as scary as it was, this was an utter act of graciousness on the part of God. But God did not need to choose this particular murderous blasphemer, persecutor, to do his work, but he did. And Paul thanks God for doing that in uh, 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 12. I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has enabled me because he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry. Although I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent man, but I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly and unbelief. 
And the grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundant with faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. However, for this reason I obtained mercy that in me first Jesus Christ might show all long suffering as a pattern to those who are going to believe on him for everlasting life. Now to the King, eternal, immortal, invisible, to God who alone is wise, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Paul thanked Christ for stepping into his life on the road to Damascus, interrupting his murderous plans, turning his life around, saving him, regenerating him, transforming him. This was an act of deliverance of God for an individual sinner and it doubled as an act of deliverance for the saints in uh, Damascus. God was rescuing those saints from Paul's murderous intentions. He was not going to further allow persecution at the moment and against his people. And in this way, God chose to limit the sin done against his church. I thank God when he does that. We see later on in Acts, we'll see it, and else a couple times we see that the Bible says, and the church had rest, and it, was, it grew and, and multiplied and that sort of thing. Those are wonderful seasons, aren't they? The church in the United States largely has rest. It should be a time of great expansion, of great consolidation, of great you know, strengthening and, and, uh, and saving of, of uh, you know, resources and using them for God so that when the lean times come, we have them for that time. Paul then turns and asks, who is talking to me? <laughs> who are you, Lord? Then the Lord Jesus identifies himself, and Paul immediately understands that this Jesus is, after all, alive, risen from the dead at the right hand of the Father, just like uh, Stephen said when he looked up into heaven at the end of chapter 7 and was being stoned to death. Saul was there listening. That's the Jesus that he saw. He's got to remember that. He could, this Jesus could still speak into the middle of world history directly and through his apostles and prophets. Well, at 9, 5, and 6, there's a little issue here. Um, it, it says it's hard for you to kick against the goads in 9, 5. Does anybody here have an ESV or NASB or NIV? No, everybody's got a New King James. What do you have there, Naomi? Do you see the kick against the goads phrase? Is it there? Okay, so at the end of verse 5, there's this phrase, it's hard for you to kick against the goads. Now, keep looking at verse 6. So he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what do you want me to do? Then the Lord said to him, arise. You probably are missing the first phrase in verse 6 also, right? Okay. So that is a textual variant or a textual issue in the book of Acts. The original manuscripts, it's believed, probably didn't have those words, so where did they come from? Well, they came from Acts 22, 6 to 11 and Acts 26, 12 to 18. 
Remember, Paul, this event is recorded here, and then two times later in the book of Acts, Paul gives his testimony again. And these words are found there. So it's not like there's some falsehood here when the New King James has it in. Whether you believe it should be there or don't believe that it should be there, I'll leave that to your, uh, your uh, you know, expert critical Greek judgment, okay? But it doesn't really matter because these phrases were undoubtedly very well known to copyists and they could have imported them here from memory. As they wrote the text, they just went on writing and said, I know what this is going to say because I've memorized this before from Acts 22 and then they import something from there into Acts 9. Paul doesn't tell us, or Luke rather, doesn't tell us everything that happened in Acts 9. There were certainly some more things that occurred there, and we are given a little window into those in Acts 22 and Acts 26. Regardless, we're safe to conclude that some close variation of these words was part of the exchange between Jesus and Paul, so we need not overly concern ourselves as if there's some terrible problem in the history of text transmission from the original manuscripts until today. And I was talking about this with our brother Drew just a few days ago and uh, reminding him, you know, we have, there were no mechanical or digital means to reproduce the scripture. If you wanted a Bible and there wasn't one, you had to take an original and write it out by hand. And I just challenge you to think that you could write out the whole Bible with no mistakes. <laughs> no mistakes, no additions, no omissions, no typos, no wrong punctuation, nothing. No, it's, it, it seems uh, impossible. Uh, you know, with computers, it's largely possible, although I, I caution you to think that computers are perfect because they're not. <laughs> they also can have errors in them. It, it happened. Well, he was, as yeah, yeah. He, Saul was dead in his trespasses and sins, and so Becky's correct to point out that the witness of Stephen was not enough to waken him, Saul, up from his uh, slumber of death in the spirit. He had to have uh, a better kick in the pants, as it were. In fact, the Lord says uh, we, he did say something about goads here. So if you at all involved with working with animals, you know. You want to have some kind of a stick around or a, you know, a, a prod or a poker kind of a thing uh, to be able to uh, encourage them in the right direction. You know, uh, we have b- bits in the horse's mouths. We have a, a, what do you call it, a whip or a, I guess you call it that, uh, crop. A, ho- a crop is what they use for horses, a short little thing to encourage them along the right path and, uh, or you know, you put your feet in the stirrups and you squeeze the little guy in his stomach to uh, get him to listen to you and all that. Well, anyway, um, so goads, sticks that are used to keep animals moving along and perhaps they had sharpened ends on them. God was prodding Paul to get with the program to con- instead of to continue on the road of his life that would lead ultimately to destruction. Now, because of the brightness of that light, you can imagine that Paul was temporarily blinded. I mean, most bright lights will blind you for a time, just normal 
bright lights, not lights of a supernatural origin. Um, and so it tells us that uh, in Acts 22.11, blinded because of the brightness of that light. Also, he didn't eat for three days uh, in verse number 9. So that's quite a uh, shock to his system. And I imagine that there was a mix, a heavy, heavy mix of emotions going through the Apostle Paul's mind because you have to think, just days earlier, he has stood at the, and, and, and affirmed the death of one of Jesus' servants. And Jesus said, you were persecuting me when you persecuted him. And so he has got to be feeling heavy, heavy, heavy guilt and then remorse and then how could I be so wrong? How could I not see what, that Jesus was fulfilling the scriptures before our very eyes? How could I not recognize him as the Lord who he is and all of that? Saul's belief in the Messiah seems to start almost immediately, if not very shortly thereafter this occurrence. Um, the time of fasting and prayer seems to be his overwhelmed response to the life-changing information that he had just heard. Um, you know, in, in modern parlance, people talk about somebody who's been kind of in the, in the, you know, conformed to the worldly flow of things, the liberal mindset, the leftist progressive mindset, and they get red-pilled. What does that mean? Do you know? Can you explain, Daniel? No? It's an, it's a, it's an allusion to something in a movie uh, and the red pill was something you take if you're going to want to see the world as it really is. And if not, the blue pill is the, the one that you would take if you just want to kind of live in la-la land. And so there's this phrase now that's come out called red pill. If you red pill someone, like if you're in a debate, say you're in a debate with a leftist and you like bring a pile of facts to that debate and you just pour them out and the leftist doesn't know them and he, he realizes suddenly that he's wrong and then he has nothing more to say and he, he starts to adopt your position, then what's the way that's explained is it's to say he's become red-pilled. He's, he's gotten, he, he now realizes the truth. Like some people could be if they would read the history books or realize, listen to the, the, you know, the, what actually occurred over the course of Israel's history since 19, the 1930s, if they really listened to that, they would be red-pilled and wouldn't be saying things like Hamas is justified to kill all those Jewish people. Um, so that's, that's an idea of this. This is what Paul underwent. This massive of a worldview change, of a shift away from what he believed for his whole life, this r massive transformation. I mean, in this time, he's cementing his decision to follow Christ. And as it says in Acts 26, 19, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision. I obeyed it. You see, Saul had already to believe, he already had to believe that the man Jesus existed. You know, Saul didn't, he wasn't born after Jesus died, right? He knew all about Jesus. He was alive the whole time of Jesus' ministry. He knew what the Sanhedrin had done to condemn him to the cross, give him over to Pilate. He knew the followers of, of the Christian way said 
that Jesus had risen from the dead. They said that he was still alive. They even said that he was in heaven. That was, you know, at least Stephen said he's in heaven. I see him up there in heaven, Stephen said. But Saul probably also considered that these people were deranged, that Jesus was a troublemaker, a troublemaker, a rabble-rouser, a blasphemer, a false teacher, a bad rabbi, or whatever. But now Saul knew that Jesus was alive. He'd talked to him personally. And he knew that it wasn't a hallucination because along in here as well, they would have talked about this the whole rest of the way to Damascus. And the guys told him, and Luke learned that they said, well, we heard a voice, but we couldn't understand anything. We didn't know what we saw the light. We didn't know what was going on. What, 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 what happened, Saul? What, why, what did you hear? And this had, I mean, he would have told them. He wouldn't have hidden it from them. And so it wasn't a hallucination because the other people experienced it with Paul as well, even though they didn't understand everything that they had heard. And so here is the transformation of the Apostle Paul. This was revolutionary in his thinking. He was now considering Jesus as Lord. And, listen, he was considering this Jesus to be Lord, and he knew that God raised him from the dead. Does that sound like a Bible verse you know? Romans 10, 9, and 10, that if you confess Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That's what the Apostle Paul experienced on the road to Damascus. We'll learn next time that he was not only called to be saved, but he was called to serve. And that's the same for us, dear ones. But we'll come to that the next time we have opportunity. It's already 8.05, so we must close uh, for today. And... uh, Put a bookmark on it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I want to thank you for allowing us to look at the Word of God this evening and to realize that the Apostle Paul here was saved, that you rescued him from sin and death, that he acknowledged Jesus as Lord and Savior, that he acknowledged him as having risen from the dead. And we'll see next time how he began to understand how he had to serve you and even pay a high price for that service. Help these ones, Lord. Those that listen online tonight, our friends who weren't able to be here, I pray that they've heard and and been encouraged in the word as well. And as they turn off their computer and turn to their other events for the evening, may they carry uh, this notion with them that uh, you chose to put your grace upon the apostle Paul, as we call him, Saul. You chose him to be a recipient of that grace as you choose each and every believer And how, God, we thank you for doing that for us. May you choose in your divine, sovereign mercy to bestow that grace upon each and every one listening to these words, whether they're a young person or old, man or woman, child or senior citizen, whether they have lived a rough life in the past or they have been kind of a, a good kid, so to speak, recognizing that we all need this rescue from you. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.